I wanted to talk to you guys about our new sponsor, Let's Get Checked. Now they're doing testosterone tests where I find this really easy because it's uncomplicated. They can send it directly to your door. It's in discreet packaging so nobody knows. You can collect your sample. You get to review your results. And then from there, a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone and you get a prescription if you need. So what's really great about this is that you're able to check where your hormones are at. And I know for a lot of us out there, including women, it's really great to know where your testosterone levels are and for men as well. The first test that you get is your free testosterone. And that's the first biomarker that they test for. And why you want to know this is because your body uses it to produce sperm, maintain a healthy sex drive, maintain muscle strength and mass, and produce red blood cells, which is absolutely important. So you guys check them out, get your testosterone checked, super easy. Don't have to go to the doctor. Plus we're quarantined right now. So you need to stay home. This is a really easy way to do it. Head over to www.trylgc.com slash wild love. I'll say that again for you. It's www.trylgc.com slash wild love. And you get to save 20% off. On this episode of True Sex and Wild Love, we speak with Anusha Vijayakumar. She's a motivational speaker and an expert in the realm of mindfulness and meditation. She's also the co-founder of the movement called Women of Color and Wellness, which is focused on decolonizing wellness and making yoga and wellness more inclusive, more equitable, more accessible. Anusha is also the author of a new book, Meditation with Intention, Quick and Easy Ways to Create Lasting Peace. We hope you'll enjoy listening to Anusha as much as we loved talking to her. Anusha, good morning. Good morning, Whitney. Wow, we actually made this happen. We had a few technical difficulties coming into it, but like you said, it's been kind of one of those weeks. <laughs> it really has. And I think this is the time that we're in now. You know, everybody is aware that things, because we're all doing it online, doesn't always go according to plan. So, you know, that's kind of why we have our practice of, of yoga and meditation and mindfulness also to just kind of go with the flow, really, when things like this happen. Exactly. And that's what I was just thinking. This is this couldn't be a more perfect classroom for exactly what you teach and the message that you put out there of meditation and mindfulness and yoga. Um, so maybe this is all perfect. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, this is the practice, to be honest with you, Whitney. It's are we able to utilize the tools of meditation and mindfulness to help us throughout our day, not just for the you know, five minutes that we're meditating a day or not just for the time that we're doing our asana practice on our mat, but are we actually able to carry our practice into our day, into our lives, into our hearts and into our minds to really embody yoga, which is what yoga is all about. Mm. And I love how you say that, which is what yoga is all about, because I feel like people you know, we've westernized yoga, but also I want to hear from you from like, from your background, really, what is yoga and how important is the mindset and the practice of it in our daily lives? So to me, I think, honestly, the continual colonization of these ancient sacred practices, which are a part of my indigenous faith, is highly problematic, Whitney. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can kind of get into that throughout the conversation that we have. But I think that when we take something and we don't honor the origins and we don't honor the roots, and quite frankly, we don't even understand what yoga is, we see how harmful it becomes. Two clear examples of this are the past year, Whitney. So, you know, we've had a global pandemic. Specifically within yoga and wellness, we have seen the rise of the anti-science rhetoric, the anti-mask rhetoric when it comes to racial injustice. We've seen a lot of, you know, toxic spiritual bypassing and harmful cultural appropriation that wishes, you know, through privilege, power, etc., to not want to engage in conversations around race, white supremacy, systemic oppression, and the list goes on. Mm-hmm. And so from that standpoint, we really are at a pivotal point in our history in this country and around the world where we have to decolonize what we really view as yoga. And ultimately, yoga is a path of individual liberation, but individual liberation is intimately connected to collective liberation. And in the time that we are in, we really can't have one without the other. Right, right. Where do you think, so take me back, I would love to hear about your roots where you're from, like really dive into who Anusha Anusha is and what you can share with us. So I am first generation. I was born in London, the United Kingdom. I've lived in four countries, but that's where I've spent the, the vast part of my life. I'm of Sri Lankan Tamil heritage. So if we just talk about yoga specifically, which is one of the six schools of Hindu philosophy, which I often think is negated, in the West, people are not, and I know this through teaching decolonization, not even aware of that, Whitney. So there's our first problem. Okay, now, right. <laughs> right? We, we don't have a conversion in Hinduism or Sanatana Dharma, which means eternal way. We believe in all faiths. We don't believe that ours is the only way or the right way. But I certainly think as open and welcoming as we have been, that is now to our detriment when the continual colonization, cultural erasure and tokenization of these practices is playing out, you know, around the country within the public education system. We see that with what's happening in Alabama and it's harmful. And so for me, being born and raised in this philosophy, yoga makes up the fabric of my life. And that's a a testament, quite frankly, to my ancestors who lived through 443 years of brutal oppression and colonization under three different Western imperialist regimes in Sri Lanka, beginning with the Portuguese, then the Dutch, and finally the British. So without the the courage, the strength, the fortitude of my ancestors, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation because I wouldn't have been able to teach what I teach in terms of yoga. I wouldn't be able to be living and embodying to the best of my ability, the practices. And to me, I wouldn't have been able to pass this lineage down to my son, who will be three next month. He's named after the Hindu god of the sun, Lord Surya, who we do Surya Namaskar to, the sun salutations. And I feel the presence of my ancestors even more so, you know, every day, Whitney, with the work that I do and the gratitude. I can't even comprehend what they went through because what people are often not aware of in the West, first of all, is the the brutalization of living under colonial rule where practicing our indigenous faith was outlawed. Our temples were desecrated. It was illegal to do yoga. And when we now see this continual colonization of yoga in the West, 
it's very traumatic for those of us that have a history of colonization through our ancestry. And I myself am only first generation. And for a lot of people, because yoga has been so whitewashed and desecrated and diluted, they're not even aware that this is, uh, you know, like I mentioned, Shad Darshana, which means one of the six philosophies of Hinduism. You know, there are 1.2 billion Hindus around the world. We're the world's third largest faith. And to me, it's wonderful that people are coming to the path of yoga and they're able to find some healing through the practices. But when we negate the origins and the roots of these practices, we continue that colonization and cultural erasure, which leads to that harmful cultural appropriation and toxic spiritual bypassing that I've mentioned. Right. Right. And this is, you're right. You know, I, I mean, I have to take, you know, responsibility on my end because I was very unaware of any of this. And I've been, you know, I, I do yoga, but I do yoga for, you know, cause it feels good and I feel like it, it relaxes me, but I'm not, you know, it's not ingrained in me. And I really didn't understand that this was the underpinnings of it. Yeah, and you 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 are indicative of I would say most people in the Western lens of yoga, where they think it's exercise. And what people fail to realize is yoga, like I just mentioned, is a shad darshana, one of our six philosophies. It's a philosophy, Whitney. Asana is but one of Sage Pathanjali's limbs, limb three. You know, there are seven other limbs. And we're now in a time where we need to have, you know, comprehension of this and to hear from authentic South Asian voices, specifically women whose voices have been marginalized uh, through the patriarchy, through religious supremacy, et cetera, to really hear from us and learn and awaken, you know, your understanding of what yoga is. Because the common sense of what yoga is in America and around the West is not at all yoga. And honestly, has nothing to do with yoga. Mm-hmm. So, walk us through that. If how how can we help? How can we learn? How can we create an environment within the yoga and the meditation and the mindfulness and the philosophy of that to a community that's more inclusive? I think honestly, it's to move away from learning from white people teaching yoga philosophy, specifically white men, which honestly has been the issue for decades now in the West. And I, I, I feel very strongly about this because within the yoga space, when I read our philosophy through the Western imperialist lens, it has that neo-colonial view because when you've been raised in a Judeo-Christian faith, I, I really feel it's very difficult for people to comprehend some of our central components of all of our dharmic faiths, which are dharma, the path of right conduct, karma, which is the law of action, cause and effect, and reincarnation, which is that this is one of many lives uh, you know, that we have as part of this existence on this physical plane. The ultimate goal of yoga is to break the cycle of samsara, which is the cycle of birth, life, and death. Now, you don't have to believe in any of that. However, you need to have a comprehension of that. And what always baffles me is the Yoga Sutras, which has been so co-opted in the West, clearly talks about all of these things, specifically karma and reincarnation. We cannot have karma without understanding reincarnation. 
And you and I both know that everybody's throwing around karma this and karma that without really understanding, you know, what karma is. And so that becomes problematic. Nobody talks about reincarnation either, because again, I think it's very, it evokes fear in people from that Judeo-Christian lens. And I will say this, in one of our older scriptures, the Rig Veda, it says, Ekam Sat Vipraha Bahuda Vedanti, which in Sanskrit means there is one truth, Whitney. There are many paths within which to get there. I'm not saying that this is the only way. That's not what we believe. Hinduism, it's Sanatana Dharma, doesn't have one founder. We don't have a specific church. We are taught to question everything. And that allows us the opportunity to find what works for us within our faith without feeding into these dogmatic kind of principles and views, which are quite prevalent in some of the other faiths. And I think that's the disconnect. People really don't understand what Sanatana Dharma and Hinduism is, which leads to, Whitney, Hindu phobia within the yoga space. And I see this play out day in and day out. Tell me, tell me more about that, the Hindu, the Hindu phobia that's going on. Well, I think people fixate on certain things, which is their perception of what Hinduism is, be it the caste system. No one is actually aware that the caste system in its existence was actually a way of, of stratifying society. And you weren't It's not the system that we see today in India, which is absolutely a form of brutal oppression and subjugation of people. What people are unaware is it was a result of colonization that that even occurred in the first place. And I talk about this, you know, in my decolonizing yoga and Bhagavad Gita trainings. People also think that we are fixated on idol worship. That is one manifestation of how we worship, but ultimately God is unmanifested. So I think people really are not aware and they want to exoticize and fetishize our faith, which again feeds into that really harmful cultural appropriation where they think, oh, the goddess Lakshmi is so pretty. Let me just, you know, put her in the toilet when that's the deity of wealth, abundance and prosperity. We pray to her and, you know, there is no reverence. People just think, of our colorful outfits and marking the third eye. And, and, you know, that's the problem with cultural appropriation where the dominant culture, which is white folks in, in America, specifically get to pick and choose what they want from yoga and get to play, if you will, because they have the privilege to do so. And that therein lies the problem. So cultural appropriation is rooted in racism and white supremacy. And those are the systems that we have to dismantle. I mean, white supremacy in general, we see this play out every day, especially for BIPOC. And, you know, what is happening in yoga in mainstream spaces in America and beyond is indicative of that. So when we talk about um, yoga, and then I want want to bring the two worlds together, because I know that you're also doing one of the first meditation programs, right, for clinical research? Yes. And so how do those two worlds blend together when we talk about, you know, yoga and meditation, the philosophy of that into the clinical space and the clinical research space of that? And this is, you know, again, the answer that I have for the public education system. You can secularize yoga, which clearly has occurred. You can secularize meditation and mindfulness while still honoring the origins and roots and people understanding that this is an ancient sacred faith and philosophy from the Indian subcontinent. 
So I think that's a really important point to make. Of course, you don't have to be Hindu. We don't have a conversion or Buddhist or, you know, you can be whatever you are, be it having a faith, be it agnostic, be it atheist. Of course, you can practice yoga and meditation. And in the clinical setting, quite frankly, Western science is just catching up. You know, Sage Patanjali, who authored the Yoga Sutras, was an ancient scientist. Yoga itself is an ancient science of the mind. Western science is now catching up to what the ancient sages knew and authored. We have it in, in text form through our scriptures. They're just catching up with what we knew. Swami Yogananda and Swami Vivekananda talk about the medulla oblongata uh, and the, the, the power of connecting our breath through activation of the vagus nerve, which now Western science is, is realizing and verifying. So I think a lot of this is lost because people aren't even aware of A, who Swami Vivekananda was. He was the first person to bring the teachings of yoga to the West in 1893. He spoke at the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago. Swami Yogananda was the second person who founded the Self-Realization Fellowship. He came in 1920. Swami Vivekananda was a direct disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, the founder of the Vedanta Society. So Vedanta is the sister school of philosophy to yoga, another one of the Shadarshanas, six philosophies of Hinduism. So again, to your point, Whitney, people really are clueless. I mean, let's just take the example of a yoga class. We've got someone chanting a mantra. They have no idea what it means. They're just doing it to tokenize or often to, to appear more authentic. Um, and that's not to detract from people that are non-South Asian and have studied and understand the mantras and are sharing it from a place of, of reverence because there are, you know, great teachers out there who are non-South Asian and have a great respect and reverence for these teachings. But when I have gone to yoga studio classes, it's a complete disconnect between very little knowledge on behalf of the teacher and to that point, Whitney, a lack of even wanting to gain further knowledge. Mm. And that's the problem, really. So, you know, these are the questions that we need to be asking. So to your point, how can you help? It's to bring these conversations into the mainstream. Why is this such a lack of South Asian voices within wellness and yoga spaces when this is a part of our indigenous faith? Uh, why are teachers not choosing now, because everything is virtual, to learn from South Asian teachers? And these are the questions that we need to be, to be asking. And we also need to be asking, you know, are, is the studio that you were going to, I mean, this is, you know, previous or whatever it is, the space that you're in, are they platforming the voices of BIPOC? Are they looking at focusing on how they can be an ally to be it black people, be it indigenous people, be it Asian people. This is the time that we're in. Are they also focused on following the rules and regulations set out by the CDC around the pandemic? You know, where I live in California, certainly Orange County, yoga studios were having classes throughout the pandemic unmasked in, in closed spaces. It's, I mean, it's utterly ridiculous. It goes against the first three yamas. Now, the yamas are the first limb of Sage Patanjali's path, which is ahimsa, nonviolence, asteya, non-stealing, which is the third yama, and satya, truth. So if we just look at those three, we see that the past year, the people that are engaging in these harmful actions really don't understand the philosophy that makes up yoga. Because if you did, 
you would be far more mindful of how you, your words, your actions are causing harm. Mm-hmm. And you would do better. And that's the point. Listen, none of us are perfect. We don't have all of the answers. And quite frankly, I would run away from anybody that tells you that they do. <laughs> Agreed. Right? Because that, that to me, and, and calling themselves the anointed guru and the anointed master, run fast. Right. I think that's, a, that's the symbol of, of patriarchy that we have to dismantle within yoga as well. But, you know, when you really are able to have even a glimpse of what constitutes the philosophy of yoga, you will have an awakening within and you will want to do better. Mm-hmm. And you will want to be better, not for tokenism, not for an empty hashtag and an empty post, but because you know that that is the only path forward. And we are in a time where the intersection of yoga and social justice is vital. And the Bhagavad Gita teaches us this specifically, you know, when we talk about things like karma yoga, karma yoga is the path of action, the path of right action, selfless service to God. And that can be the God of your own understanding, be it God, universe, source, spirit, light, whatever makes you feel more comfortable. But, you know, the fundamental principle really, Whitney, is we are all embodiments of the divine. The Atman, the soul within is eternal. And how could we not want to uplift and alleviate the suffering of others when we feel that connection to others, specifically those who don't look like us? And I think that's where the largest disconnect has occurred in yoga over the past year. And we see white supremacy, we see white privilege, we see white silence, we see white fragility play it out daily within these spaces, of course, and beyond. Right. And I think you're you're absolutely right when it comes to people fully understanding and embodying and, and knowing where these teachings are coming from, you want to do better. It's just, that's at least I hope, you know, at least that's like for me, the collective consciousness is is that's only a benefit for all of us. Well, exactly. But even if we go to karma and reincarnation, so let's just say that clearly, as well, I don't know where you, you're based, but in Orange County, they were, you know, anti-science, anti-mass. So let's just say that you're teaching yoga. And I say yoga in inverted commas here, because clearly what we've seen play out isn't yoga. And you don't believe in wearing a mask. But if you really believed in karma and reincarnation, you'd be thinking, hmm, do I want to be knowingly causing harm to others? So maybe when I go out in public, especially to enclosed spaces, I'm not going to argue with the staff there about not wearing a mask. Right. And that's what's happening in yoga. And I wrote an article that went viral last year for InStyle called The Rise of White Supremacy in Yoga. And I specifically honed in on my own hometown of San Clemente, California, because what is happening here is the antithesis of yoga. And we saw a white male ex-police chief turned yoga teacher uh, lead, you know, be one of the leaders of the anti-Black Lives Matter movement. This person was also part of the insurrection on Wednesday, January 6th, that I understand is still teaching yoga within studio environments in San Clemente. So people don't realize the seriousness of the situation that we are in within yoga. When we talk about the seriousness of that, is this, is this, so this was written in the In Style. Yeah, um, in October last year. Right. Which is, if you guys have not read this, definitely go to it. InStyle.com is, I think it's under like the beauty and the health uh, fitness 
kind of a, what's it called? Little tab there. Um, yoga white supremacy. It's, it's deep and it's challenging to read. It's hard, you know, because you have to take, you have to take responsibility for how everyone is playing into this, particularly yeah. like myself and everyone has to really like have their eyes wide open. And I so appreciate that you are doing this because I know it's a, it's a, it's a big thing to do. And I can only imagine some of the, some of the lashings that you've probably got. <laughs> I mean, that's putting it mildly. I've been gaslit. I've been threatened. I've been abused. I've been vilified. And let me just say this. It is not on the onus of BIPOC, especially BIWOC, to speak up against racism. This is a lived experience for us. I did this because I really felt I had no choice. And I, I used my voice. However, really, the onus and responsibility is on white folks to dismantle white supremacy that they benefit from consciously, subconsciously, unconsciously. And yet time and time again, it's BIPOC that speak out and we do it for the betterment of everybody. Yet then we are racially gaslit, vilified, threatened and abused and putting ourselves in harm's way, especially for those of us like myself that live in predominantly white communities. I am a highly melanated, visible woman of color. I can't hide. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we put ourselves at risk to speak out for the greater good when really it shouldn't be up to us to do that and we shouldn't have to do that. And I think this is a time of reckoning for white people within the yoga and wellness space to do better because it's overdue now. You know, white silence, Whitney, as we see, is not only complicit, it's creating violence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's I like, I like how you said that, a reckoning for white people within that space. But I also feel like it's a reckoning for white people just generally. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, putting it mildly. Yeah, exactly. Putting it mildly. It is a reckoning. I mean, let's just take what happened this week with the domestic terrorist white supremacist who shot up, you know, and murdered eight Asian women. And the sheriff said, and I think I'm going to quote here because I watched the interview. He was at the end of his rope when we found him and he was having a bad day. So here, yet again, we humanize white supremacy and we dehumanize the Asian, you know, BIWOC women that he's murdered. And that's the problem. We have to dismantle white supremacy. We have to dismantle the patriarchy. We have to dismantle misogyny. And we also have to look at things from an intersectional lens with everything that we're doing. And you know, therein lies our problem, that white folks will go to any lengths to defend other white people versus taking a step back and, and really exploring the actions objectively and how they can do better moving forward and be true allies and agents of change within your own communities and societies and to commit to being actively anti-racist and to understand that racism and white supremacy runs deep, and that's just because of a multitude of factors, Whitney. You know, when I talk about white supremacy, I'm not talking about, yes, the person waving the, the, the Confederate flag and wearing the swastika, the Auschwitz badge. Yes, we, we saw that unfold on Wednesday, January 6th with the insurrection. I'm talking about white supremacy that permeates every part of our existence in the education system, 
in media, in publishing, in fashion, in beauty, history, and the list goes on. Mm -hmm. So we have to decolonize the lens through which we view the world, which is very difficult for white folks because they've always been at the top of the pyramid. And I think what they don't realize is, especially in yoga, that throwing out the empty slogans like sending love and light and we are all one is useless and futile if we're not really committing to dismantle systems that are unjust and are unfair and have kept BIPOC down specifically for centuries. That has to be an integral part of our practice. Right. It's just empty, empty words at that point. And we've seen so many empty words. And I'm often told, you know, what I teach isn't yoga, which is simply preposterous because, you know, this is a part of my indigenous faith that I was born and raised in. But again, it's the white lens through which yoga is viewed that, oh, I'm just going to keep this space free from, you know, any negativity, which is what? What? What you perceive as negativity is anybody talking about racism and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And that's a very deluded, privileged position to, to be in without even wanting to do the work of exploring your own racism within, your own unconscious bias within, and how, like you've said, have contributed knowingly or unknowingly to these systems of harm. Right. Right. And it's, it's, it's just being ruthlessly honest with yourself. And I think a lot of people don't want to do that because it's uncomfortable. But that's the point. That's why we practice yoga, Whitney. Svakyaya, one of the niyamas, the self-study. Listen, if we're always feeling comfortable, that, that's a problem. Right? I absolutely agree. I'm always, I'm the one that's always trying to push the boundaries. So I 100% agree with you on that. Yeah. And, and that's why we have our practice. And I think, you know, with BIPOC, we have been made to feel uncomfortable for most of our lives. So I don't, it's not new to us to be uncomfortable. Uh, but, you know, we still do our own work as well. And I think over the past year in particular, white folks in yoga are finding it more difficult to hide, uh, though, of course, there are still many places that allow and enable that mindset. But those are the places that we all collectively need to work towards shifting. And, you know, if you just want to go and exercise, great. Don't call it yoga. If you want to engage in toxic spiritual bypassing and harmful cultural appropriation, that's not yoga. So we need to also change the framework and the perception of what yoga is in the West. Mm -hmm. And yes, and I feel like this conversation can go on for hours and hours because I feel like this is this is so important and it can go so deep and there's so many tentacles and veins that we can go down. I do before you have to hop up. I know you have to go to the hospital. Um, I want to hear about your book really quickly, Meditation with Intention, Quick and Easy Ways to Create Lasting Peace, which thank you for writing that book. <laughs> thank you so much for your support. This is a book from my heart to the world. And I was so blessed, Whitney, I'm which we didn't really get too much time to talk about, but I am the wellness consultant for one of the top 100 hospitals in America, top 2000 in the West for their award-winning Women's Health Institute. I'm so blessed to work with so many amazing physicians and surgeons. In fact, Dr. Sadia Khan, a breast oncoplastic surgeon, the director of our breast cancer survivorship program, wrote the foreword. Uh, I had Dr. Robert Lewis, a world-renowned neurosurgeon, end endorse the book. Dr. Dipti Ichapuria, a world-renowned cardiologist, endorsed the book. Dr. Heather McDonald a renowned breast surgeon uh, who's the director of our Previva program and many others within a clinical framework. And to me, being a woman of color in STEM, 
science and the, 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 I guess, the move away from believing in science has deeply kind of impacted how I teach because yoga is a science itself. So to see this rise of the spreading of disinformation and this move away from backing anything with scientific ed- evidence is, com- is, is incredibly harmful. So the work that I do, I feel even more passionate and fortunate to do. The book is really from my heart to the world about, again, honoring the origins and the roots, but secularizing the practices and making them accessible and inclusive and diverse. And so everybody can practice them, which we know has not played out in mainstream yoga and wellness, which is very elitist, which has a very much a lack of diversity and representation and inclusivity. And that's got to change. And, you know, we're seeing somewhat of a shift with that over the past year. Uh, The book talks about my clinical experience. Like you mentioned, I'm one of the first people to create a meditation program at Hoke Hospital that we're using in clinical research. We're looking at the efficacy of meditation and mindfulness as a way to manage perioperative pain management for our breast cancer patients. I'm delighted to report that we are seeing anecdotally phenomenal results with this feasibility study, which we're really excited about. We've seen over the past year that the stress levels of our patients have increased tenfold, and that's across all of the programs that I work on, maternal mental health, breast cancer, the survivorship, metastatic breast cancer, our pre-viva program, which is those that have a high risk of developing breast or ovarian cancer. This has been an incredibly stressful year. And, you know, when I wrote the book, I had no idea that the past year would unfold. It was submitted before we even knew there was a pandemic. And so it's really come at a pivotal time. And I would love people to support the book by buying it. And I can give you the link to to do that. You can get it on Amazon or your, you know, wherever you buy your books from Barnes and Noble. But just to end on the need to decolonize, you know, the top five books on Hinduism on Amazon are all written by non-South Asian people. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. And so the only way that we can shift that is by supporting South Asian women voices in this space. And you can do that by buying my book. And hopefully, uh, you know, it will help you to understand the impact that meditation and mindfulness can have on our minds, on our lives and in our hearts. Mm. And it's, it's not it could not come in a better time. And yes, we will definitely put the link to your book in the show notes. So everyone, please go check it out. Please check out Anusha. And thank you for taking us to school today. (laughs) Like seriously, (laughs) thank you so much for that. I'm going to do better. And I hope everyone listening to this is, is it's opened your eyes and that we can all, you know, be in this together in a way that's supportive and inclusive. Exactly. And to not try to be perfect, you know, we're imperfect beings. First of all, having being in a human body makes us imperfect. So let's honor that. Let's understand that. And it's not about, you know, to me, the way that I teach isn't about, oh, you know, this is blame, blame, blame. But we certainly are in a time where we have to focus on accountability and repair. And that isn't happening anywhere near enough in the yoga space itself. And we have to kind of shift those conversations. And each of us has a role in which we can play in doing that. And so never think to yourself, who am I to create change? Who are you not? You know, we all have a voice. We all have our power. We all have our dharma, our path of right conduct to live up to, to tap into in this life. And it's vital that we do it. 
And, you know, I'd love to also share some links. You can keep in touch with me via Instagram at Shanti Within. I also have an upcoming training, the Bhagavad Gita, an introduction to the Bhagavad Gita with Yoga Journal. I'm a faculty member with Yoga Journal, a digital columnist, and a faculty member with Off the Mat as well. I have a number of different courses coming up, and I would invite everybody who's listening to attend so you can really work on decolonizing your own lens through which you view yoga. Mm, beautiful. Thank you so, so much, Nusha. Thank you so much. This has been a delight, Whitney. I really appreciate you taking the time and inviting me onto your show. And I would love to, you know, we can chat again another time. Yes, I would absolutely love that. We'll have you on again. We'll have Wednesday on. Maybe, you know, maybe everything will run smoothly this time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Or maybe it's too, too much wishful hoping. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Whitney. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, it would help us a lot if you would leave a review. Yeah. Leave a review, subscribe. We want to know how you guys felt about the episode. It really helps us out a lot to continue the success of the podcast and keep spreading our message.